Hello, everyone. Hello, this is Keith, your host, and it is time for a half-hour episode of Lum and Abner. I forgot the name of the show. It's the Retro Radio Podcast. No, he means the episode for today. Oh, yeah. It is from March 8th, 1950. Lum writes a play, The Living History Pageant, I believe is what he calls it. Usually I say a few words here to introduce the show or introduce some things about Lum and Abner. Let me uh, keep my words to a minimum uh, because I was reading some uh, jot them down journals and it turns out I happened to have the one from April of 1988. That was during a time when Clarence Hartzell had just passed away. And for Lemon Abner fans, you will know that Clarence Hartzell, although he's not in today's show, he would have left the show about a year before this one aired. He was Ben Withers uh, through the late 40s and right up into the half-hour shows. He also was famously of Vic and Sade and others. I will leave my comments there. Because uh, we should have Donnie Pitchford here uh, really quickly to read us an article from that Jot em Down journal. What does Donnie Pitchford look like? He's kind of, and he has one of those. You don't mean he has a, yes, and not only that, does he have one as bad as that guy coming up the walk? Even worse, that's Uncle Donnie now. Oh, well, here he comes now. Hey, get away from the window. You're crowding me. I was here first. Yeah, but you've seen him before. This is my first time. Would you two get away from the window? Just go open the door. I'll get it. Thank you. Hello, Uncle Donnie. I see you're all set to go. The microphone is all yours. Fine. The Many Careers of Clarence Hartzell. A major role in Lemon Abner history was that played by Clarence L. Hartzell. His performance as Dr. Benjamin Franklin Withers, sometimes known as Doc or Ben for short, was a hilarious impersonation of a half-deaf, slightly senile old duffer who delighted in repeating stories about a seemingly endless parade of old cronies. But this was only one role played by Hartzell during his long career in radio and television. In fact, he has performed on so many different series that he himself finds it difficult to remember them all. We in the NLAS believe that he has never quite been given the proper recognition, and so we now present his history. Hartzell was born in Huntington, West Virginia. His first job in radio was for a small local station operated by a neighborhood electrical company. Quote, anybody could be on the radio. All you needed to know was how to play a musical saw or blow on a kazoo, and you could be on the airwaves, he recollects. Well, he didn't do either one, but he organized a male vocal group, and they were good enough that when the station moved into larger and better facilities, Hartzell, still in high school, and his brother were asked to do a 15-minute musical program each week. Soon, the whole Hartzell family moved to Cincinnati, and the brothers continued their musical escapades on radio station WFBE. Hartzell eventually became a relief announcer and music librarian for the station. It was his idea to begin a series of mystery dramas on the air, and he even persuaded Detective Story magazine to provide the scripts free of charge. 
But when he discovered that the actors on the show would perform for free as well, he objected and was fired. Hartzell worked as an announcer for a station in Cicero, a Chicago suburb, and then was hired as program director for another station in Joliet, Illinois. In 1931, Hartzell dropped out of radio for a year and moved back to his old homestead in Cincinnati. But it wasn't long before he was back in Chicago writing radio plays. This particular station, WLS, sent its actors out to perform at various functions, and it was during one of these jaunts that the accident occurred that affected Hartzell's future career forever. He tells it this way. One night we had played an engagement at a little town about 75 to 100 miles out of Chicago, and we were all riding in this director's big Packard. We were coming home from the engagement about 1 o'clock in the morning. Everyone in the car was asleep but me, and when I happened to look over at the driver, he had his head down on the wheel, sound asleep. I looked out the windshield, and a telephone pole was coming at us about 45 miles per hour, and that's all I remember. Well, they didn't have padded dashboards in those days. It was all metal, and I lost four or five teeth. Fortunately, that was all. As a result, when the dentist fixed me up with some choppers, they worked fine, except my S's whistled. Because of his whistling S's, Hartzell subsequently began playing old men on the air, starting with a role on NBC's Uncle Ezra show, starring Pat Barrett. After a time of writing some more shows for NBC, Hartzell got his big break. The year was 1940. The Vic and Sade series was facing a crisis. Art Van Harvey, who portrayed Vic, had a heart seizure, and for a while it looked like the series would lose its male lead. It was decided to bring in the character of Uncle Fletcher, previously known only through his offstage antics. Auditions were held, though it was generally assumed that the character actor Sidney Elstrom would get the part. But as soon as youngster Clarence Hartzell opened his mouth at the audition, the role of Uncle Fletcher was cemented. John Dunning, in his encyclopedic Tune In Yesterday, has described Hartzell's role this way, quote, Uncle Fletcher was the most absent-minded old cuss of the air, an eccentric, who talked right through people, saying, fine, fine, to everything, without hearing one word of what was said, mused for hours about the hyena grease someone had made up at the Bright Kentucky Hotel, or followed the trek of some half-wit fly as it crawled lazily across the ceiling. During 1943-44, while Vic and Sade was still running, Hartzell had a comparatively straight role in an adventure series, The Road to Danger. He played Cottonseed Sample, a behind-the-enemy-lines American truck driver, along with the late Curly Bradley, better known as Tom Mix, as his partner Stumpy. The series is almost totally forgotten by most radio buffs today, but a few recordings are known to exist. When Vic and Sade ended its run of 15-minute episodes in 1944, Hartzell jumped right into another series, those Websters premiering in 1945. He was Mr. Watt, another of his trademark Old Codgers. Proving his acting ability, he also had elderly roles in several dramatic series around this time, including several of the radio soap operas. On November 1st, 1946, Roz Rogers wrote Hartzell into the Lum and Abner series as Pine Ridge's new veterinarian, Dr. Benjamin Franklin Withers. But trouble was brewing in the offing. Lum and Abner's sponsor, Miles Laboratories, the makers of Alka-Seltzer, one-a-day brand vitamins, and Miles Nervine, as announcer Gene Baker oft-times said, was trying to effect a deal with a veterinary supply company. The latter company 
wouldn't go through with it because of the laughable portrayal of a veterinarian on the Lemon Abner show. Even Hartzell himself admits that Doc Withers was not exactly the ideal picture of a veterinarian. The sponsor demanded that Hartzell, alias Doc Withers, be fired immediately. But Chetlock, Tuffy Goff, and Roz Rogers stood their ground and decided to make Withers a constable instead. Miles Laboratories conceded with ill grace. Early in 1947, Doc Withers became Ben Withers and played a major role in nearly every episode. His absent-minded reply to everything, Fine, came from his Uncle Fletcher days, as did his interminable stories about his equally bizarre old friends, particularly the Zinkafus family of Mount Ida. When cancer surgery forced Goff Abner off the show from January to March 1948, Hartzell's role became even more important. The half-hour Lumen Abner show began in September 1948, and though Hartzell, like Roz Rogers and nearly everyone else connected with the show, it seems, objected to the change in format, he stuck with the series until the end of the first season in the spring of 1949. His part as the local old eccentric was more or less filled during the second season by Cliff Charlie Weaver Arquette. Hartzell had never liked Hollywood or California in the least, so he headed back to Chicago. It wasn't long before he found himself commuting to New York each weekend for the Henry Morgan show, but he soon tired of this schedule. Television was coming into its own at this time, and NBC TV in Chicago signed Hartzell to host a children's show as Cactus Jim. In costume as the old desert rat, Hartzell introduced B-Westerns and told stories about life in the Old West, or at least showbiz's version of it. He remained with NBC TV there in Chicago and appeared as his usual eccentric character in a summer replacement series, Those Endearing Young Charms, and also had another dramatic, though aged as usual, role in a soap opera, Hawkins Falls. Throughout the 1950s, he made industrial and promotional films for such companies as Ford and Chevrolet. Hartzell eased into retirement and, in 1979, moved to Bella Vista, Arkansas, with his devoted wife, Helen. He was active in the Bella Vista Television Association, as well as writing music, poetry, and a newspaper column on wildflowers. In June 1985, he was a guest at the first NLAS convention in Pine Ridge and participated in a recreation of an original Ben Withers script. In 1986, he was unable to be present in person, but still participated in a script by sending his lines on tape. He sent another audio tape to the 1987 gathering, saluting that year's guest, Jerry Hausner. Much to the sorrow of the NLAS, Hartzell died of a heart attack at his home in Bella Vista on March 5, 1988, at the age of 77. At the time of his death, he was planning a return trip to the 1988 NLAS convention and had even conceived the idea for a new Lumen Abner, Ben Withers script that, alas, will now never be performed. It is certain that we will all miss him. The best word of all to describe him would be Ben Withers' own favorite remark. Fine! Revised article by Tim Hollis. Describing the photographs, on page 3 at the very top, is the same photograph from the cover of Clarence smiling and speaking to the audience in 1985 outside the Jotham Down store and Pine Ridge post office. On page four, the classic portrait 
The cast of Vic and Sade, Art Van Harvey, Clarence Hartzell, Bernadine Flynn, and William Idelson. Then a portrait of Clarence Hartzell, circa 1943, showing very dapper young man, thick wavy hair, dark suit. The upper left corner of page five, another classic radio photo from the CBS days of Lumen Abner. Chet Locke holding script on the left, Clarence Hartzell in the middle with his script, Tuffy Goff holding his script at the right, all circled around the RCA 44 microphone. Clarence appears to be speaking in this scene, and both Chet and Tuffy are enjoying it. The lower right corner on page 5, publicity photo of Cactus Jim, 1951. Clarence in heavy false white whiskers, mustache, battered hat, plaid shirt, and overalls. Appears to be whittling, I think. Classic photograph of Cactus Jim. Thanks, Uncle Donnie. That was a nice article. Yeah, but Keith says our time is starting to run short, and you have to go. Don't be so rude, David. Keith never said that. The least you could do was tell him goodbye. He loves it. He'll be back. All right. Wow, that is uh, amazing. He had an amazing career. That's all I have to say about that. And with that said, here is our show. Take it away, Retrobots. Here's Lum and Abner. Lum writes a pageant of living history. March 8, 1950. Can you come back here in the feed room a minute? I need your advice on something. Why, sure, Lom. I'm all... Lom, Edders, what in the world is that thing you're wearing? Well, this is what I wanted to ask your advice on. It's a swallowtail coat. Oh. Well, my advice is to give the tails back to the swallow. <laughs> Let the rest of it get back to Capistrano the best way it can. <laughs> Where in the world did you get that coat? I'm surprised you don't remember it, Abner. I wore it when I was best man at your wedding to Elizabeth. Of course, it weren't so wrinkled then. Neither was Elizabeth. <laughs> no, because I'm glad she held up better than that coat did. <laughs> I thought it'd be a good idea if I wore this when I present my pageant of living history. Yeah, you about... You're what? My pageant of living history. Oh. See, I'm writing a pageant of the history of the world, and I'm putting it on Monday at the schoolhouse for the children. So, but ain't they got enough trouble getting them youngins to go to school now? Well, that's the idea. See, the other night at the school board meeting, we was discussing why attendance was falling off at the school. Well, you didn't have to have a meeting to figure that out. Any nitwit could have told you. I'm sorry, Abner, but we never thought of asking you. <laughs> Thank you. We know why the attendance has been falling off. 
school ain't entertaining enough for the modern child. It can't compete with movies and radio and comic books. Yeah, kids sure start reading them comic books young. Elizabeth's little nephew, Egbert, you know, he started reading Superman when he was a year old, and he never stopped till he began walking. Well, how old was he then? Twelve. <laughs> Why didn't he walk till he was 12? He never tried. He'd been reading Superman so long, he thought he was supposed to fly. It was just downright pitiful to watch that little fella standing on the edge of his crib, flapping his arms and trying to take off. Well, he did take off a couple of times. Got in. Comic books ain't the only thing that's interfering with education. There's television, too. Well, we ain't got that in Pine Ridge yet. No, but they got it in Little Rock. Some of Ezra's kin folks bought a set, and his cousin Ludlow won't do nothing but look at Milton Berle. <laughs> Just loves Milton Berle. Well. Then he's affecting his schoolwork, too. It has, huh? Oh, yeah. He won't get up in class and recite unless his mother's sitting in the front row applauding. <laughs> And while the other kid is out playing marbles and baseball, all Ludlow does is walk around the house telling old jokes. You gotta laugh at him, too. Well, maybe if he didn't laugh, it's disencouraging. No, that just makes it worse. Then he comes in wearing funny costumes. <laughs> well, it weren't like that when we went to school. No, I'll say it right They didn't pamper us. Oh, no. I recollect I used to get up every day at four in the morning and milk 17 cows before I went to school. That didn't hurt you now. No, except for the first couple of hours, I couldn't hold a fountain pen in my hand without squirting the ink all over. Well, uh, Lon, what's all this got to do with this uh, pageant that you're putting on? Well, this pageant is my way of competing with these outside influences. Oh. The kids ain't been studying their history, so I'm dramatizing it so they'll think they're being entertained while actual they're learning. <laughs> you think it'll work? Of course. The only the old theory of putting the castor oil in orange juice so you don't notice the taste. Huh. History is the castor oil, and my pageant is the orange juice. Ah. It's going to have a great effect on the younger generation. It sure is. They're going to grow up loving castor oil and hating orange juice. <laughs> finish writing my pageant of living history. Well, I don't as long the school board ought to give you a vote of thanks for what you're done. No, it ain't nothing. Well, I know, but they ought to give you a vote of thanks anyway. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to figure the best way to put it on. Maybe I'll do it like uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille? Who's she? <laughs> it ain't a she, it's a him. It's a him. Oh, how's it going? <laughs> What go? This him, Cecil B. DeMille. Sing it for me, Long. <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille's a man. He's the fellow that puts on them big spectacles. What's the matter? Is he nearsighted? Oh, of course not. Well, what, what's he put on them big spectacles for? I don't mean them kind of spectacles. I'm talking about movie spectacles. You, you mean he just wears them when he goes to the picture show? <laughs> he don't wear them. They're up on the screen. Well, that's handy for him, but don't it make it hard for the other people to see the picture? Oh, 
It might not be the right glasses for them. Give them eye strain. Make them squint. That's right. Dog, if he's giving everybody in the theater a headache. Stop acting like an idiot. I'm trying to tell you Cecil B. DeMille's a Hollywood producer that makes them big pictures. They call them spectacles because they're spectacular. Oh. He just got through shooting Samson and Delilah. <laughs> He is nearsighted, isn't he? That's the name of the picture. It's like this pageant of mine, a big historical thing. Well, who's going to be in it? Well, I ain't figured that out yet. I got a lot of parts to cast. See, it starts out with the caveman, and I got to get somebody to play that. Well, what's he supposed to look like? Well, he's got to have a low forehead, uh, sort of a jutting jaw, and look kind of stupid. Hello? Now, there's typecasting if I ever seen it. <laughs> How are you, Opie? Well, I don't feel so good today. I went to the movies last night with my girlfriend, Laverne Deadbolt, and <laughs> she was, you know, I had the hardest time putting my arm around that gal. Well, why wouldn't she let you? Well, uh, you see, I was sitting downstairs, and she was sitting in the balcony. <laughs> well, Opie, how can you take a girl to the show and let her sit in the balcony? Well, she didn't have enough money for two downstairs, see? <laughs> say you let Laverne pay for the tickets. Why not? She's got a better job than I have. Laverne makes $16 a week working in a car wash. Car wash? <laughs> what does she do there? Well, she's a left front fender flusher. <laughs> She started in as a back-bottom bumper buffer. <laughs> sure must have applied herself. Yeah. Now, what's she doing now? Oh, she's really a success now. She's a classy, lassie, chassis checker. <laughs> Opie, if you can forget Laverne for a minute, I want to ask you something. How'd you like to take part in this history pageant I'm putting on at the schoolhouse? Gee willikers, that sounds keen. What part do you want me to play, Lum? Uh, caveman. It ain't hard, Opie. All you got to do is walk on the stage with a club and a leopard skin. Well, Lum, I ain't got no leopard skin. <laughs> we can paint some spots on you. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'll get you one summer. Yeah. Where are you going to get it, Cecil? Well, <laughs> maybe I can... Granny, where am I going to get it? Come to think of it, where am I going to get costumes for everybody else in the pageant? They all got to be dressed for their parts. Hey, Lump, maybe you could just narrow the history of the world down to Lady Godiva and let it go at that. Abner, this is for school kids. I can't do Lady Godiva. Well, why not? Kids love horses. <laughs> oh, this is awful. I was so busy writing the pageant, I plumb forgot about the costume. I guess I'm going to have to just call it off. Lump, I know where you might get some. Where? Well, there was a carnival over at the county seat a couple of weeks ago. Couldn't pay the bill, so the sheriff kept his stuff. I bet he'd loan it to you if you ask him. Oh, that's a great idea. I'll call him up right now. Opie, I've got to hand it to you. You've got a brain. Well, just like my Aunt Minnie used to say, it's the little things that count. <laughs> I sent him to the county seat early this morning to pick up the carnival stuff, and he ain't back yet. Well, he'd better hurry. That pageant's tomorrow, ain't it? Yeah. I'm going to have some costume fittings tonight. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lum. Maybe that's him coming up on the front porch there. Yoo! Yoo! 
No, that's Vazu Pitt. Uh, sounds like she's free. I've been avoiding her all week, so, so I don't have to let her be in the pageant. Hello, Miss Pitt. Oh, Mr. Edwards, I'll come right to the point. What do I have to do to get a part for myself? Part? Oh, just give us a serial number and we'll see if we got it in stock. <laughs> Mr. Peabody. Of course, for something major like a transmission, we might have to send clean to Detroit first. <laughs> Mr. Peabody, I'm talking about a part in the pageant. Oh, so she's Everybody over. else in town has been given one. Certainly, I must fit into the history of the world somewhere. Oh, you do. You must. We, we just ain't figured out where. What? I mean, I just ain't figured out a part that fits your personality and looks. <laughs> ain't you going to have no dinosaurs? <laughs> Mr. Peabody, it might interest you to know that I have nothing but contempt for your stupidity. Yeah. Well, it might interest you to know that I have nothing but stupidity for your contempt. <laughs> Yes, to come out even on that. Oh, and Mr. Edwards, if I may make a suggestion, perhaps you and I could portray some of the great lovers of history like Caesar and Cleopatra. No, I don't think so. Napoleon and Josephine? No, Miss Pitt, this is for children. How about Popeye and Olive Oil? <laughs> you know, Mr. Edwards, sometimes I'm sorry I didn't live in the Middle Ages. Sometimes I ain't sure you didn't. I mean, in those days, there were so many more men than women. Well, Miss Pitts, I was just reading in the paper that in the United States, there are two men for every woman. Two men for every woman? That's right. Well, how do you like that? Some snake has four. <laughs> oh, maybe it ain't so bad. Have you run your trap line recently? <laughs> Yeah. You might have a good haul there, not know it. Oh, there's the car. Hello. Hello, Ralph. This is Opie. Opie, where are you? In a telephone booth. Well, what about the truck? Oh, that's outside. There ain't room in here for both of us. <laughs> I mean, haven't you got it loaded yet? No, I've been sorting out all the stuff in the carnival. I thought you'd want this taking a very long time. Well, I can do that myself. Just throw everything in the truck and get back here. Okay. Say, Ralph, before I hang up, there's something I want to say. All right, what is it? Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Granny. Oh, Mr. Edwards, I think I'll be running along now. I hope you'll be able to find a part for me to play. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got an idea who you ought to play. It's perfect. Fits you to a T. Oh, that's wonderful. Who is it? John L. Lewis. <laughs> I don't see how that fits me. Well, he couldn't get a man to go near the pits either. <laughs> Abner, look out the window and see if you can see O.P. Dog, it's almost dark out. There's a big cloud blotting out the moon. <laughs> hey, now there's something blotting out the clouds. How long do you think it's an eclipse? Hiya, fellas. Oh, no. Just Andy Devine. Yeah, hi, Andy. Hi, Skinny. Skinny? Then after you notice. Notice what? My waistline. Well, how can I help noticing it? <laughs> You're the only fella I know that comes in a room belt buckle first. <laughs> that I've taken off some weight. Look at my belt. 
sound. It reminds me of Boulder Dam. How can so little hold back so much? Your measurements have changed. We better get them. I want to be sure your costume fits for the pageant. Now, Lem, there ain't no sense of measuring me because I ain't going to wear that costume. But you got to. You're supposed to be Mark Anthony. I ain't going to run on no stage with nothing on but a big white sheet. Now, how will it look? Like an unmade feather bed. <laughs> making fun of me. I ain't gonna do it. But, Andy, don't you want to help the school children with their education? Oh, sure, but I don't believe in all these fancy frills. Well, when I went to school, we just had one teacher, Mrs. Creel. She taught us arithmetic, spelling, literature, grammar, and gym. I can see her now standing there doing short division in her long gym bloomers. <laughs> And if time ran short, she'd combine Shakespeare and basketball. Why, one day she had Hamlet jumping center with the Merchant of Venice. Andy, we'll see what we can do as soon as Opie gets here with the costume. Wait a minute, I believe that's him now. Hello? Opie, am I glad to see you. Have you got all of the stuff from the carnival? Yes, but in the truck outside. Well, go bring it. What was that? Sounded like a lion. Well, it wasn't the cry of the wild goose. You mean that was a lion? No, that was an elephant. Opie, where did them animals come from? They were with the stuff at the carnival. Well, why did you bring them here? You said to throw everything in the truck. Dennis, I didn't mean everything. Well, I left the flares for you. <laughs> Well, what about the costume? Oh, they're out in the truck, too. Good. Well, I don't know if it's good or not. You see, a black cat's been sitting on him with a white stripe down inside. <laughs> oh, gosh, now, where did he come from? I put him there. I saw him running around the animal cages, so I figured he was a professional member of the carnival. But I was wrong. He turned out to be a rank amateur. <laughs> Opie, couldn't you tell a difference? Didn't you notice anything? Well, not until I got out on the road and other cars started giving me the right-of-way. <laughs> Funny thing, and I wasn't even blowing my horn. My goodness, what am I going to do? Well, you can take all them animals back. Yeah, but what about the costumes? I can't use them. Why, the students would get one whiff of them, and what would they say about my pageant? Oh, I don't think it'd make no difference as long as they'd just said it anyway. <laughs>
I just wanted to tell you the kids is all in the assembly hall, and we can start the pageant any time now. Is everybody here? Andy? I'm here. Zazu? Here. Opie? Where's Opie? Out there in his truck. <laughs> Say, Lon, I still don't know how we're going to do this pageant without no costume. I told you, Andy, I'm going to stand on the side of the stage and narrate what's going on. And the kids can use their imagination. They'll more likely use their bean shooters. <laughs> now, don't worry about it. I'll go out there now and get things started. Have her be ready to pull the curtain. Any old time, Buster. Well, thank you, children. Thank you. Now, a lot of you have been complaining that reading history is the dullest thing you can do. Well, when you get done seeing this pageant, you're going to change your mind. <laughs> so now, if the school orchestra will give us some music, we present a pageant of living history. <laughs> A caveman. Here we see two cavemen. Ugh. Ugh. They were called cavemen because they lived in caves. The cavemen didn't have none of the finer things in life, such as televisions, garbage disposals, or mixmasters. In fact, is all they did all day was sit around bashing each other on the head with rocks. Ugh. Um. This gave the caveman his low forehead and his jutting jaw. His whole conversation consisted of nothing but... Uh, uh. You see how monotonous this can get. So they moved to a better neighborhood, Egypt. The Egyptians lived in houses called Sphinx. They were very progressive. Fact is, it was them that started the ancient pyramid club. <laughs> the queen of Egypt was Cleopatra. She spent most of her time barging up and down the Nile and playing pharaoh. <laughs> Scene two of our pageant takes place on Cleopatra's barge. She's waiting for her boyfriend, Mark Antony, who she's going to poison. He's still at the Court of Human Relations. Well, I do wish he'd hurry. Yeah, his drink is getting warm. You want me to throw another ask in it? Well, never mind. He said he was going to stab Caesar and hurry right over. What time is it? The hourglass just struck one. Wait, I believe that's him now. Hail! Oh, beautiful Cleopatra, hail! Thrice hail! Dog, he sounds like a Roman cross warning. <laughs> Cut out the remark. Oh. I'm sorry I'm late. My beautiful rose puddle. <laughs> now, just a minute. Rack them up and break again now. <laughs> Try that over again, Andy. Oh, puddle again. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm late, my beautiful rose puddle. 
That's better. That's longer than I expected. A what? Caesar, Dad. Yay, Barley. He looked up into my eyes and said, At two, Bruce? No wonder it took so long. They was having lunch together. Glad you did it. Yay, and now, Cleopatra, my love, you and me can rule the world together. There's a combination. <laughs> yes, let's toast our alliance. Here's your glass. Thanks. Wait a minute. This drink has a head on it. There are many drinks that have a head on them. With two beady eyes? <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> That's a stuffed olive. <laughs> well, it kept sticking its pimento out of it. <laughs> He died. But how? The strangest way bottoms up. We now turn the clock of history forward 2,000 years. Oh, because that's nearly a whole century. <laughs> Nero played a hot fiddle while Rome burned. Marco invented polo. However, America hadn't been discovered yet, which brings us to Columbus. Scene three, the discovery of America. Columbus was born in Italy in a little house in Genoa. This house has long since been torn down to make way for a vacant lot. He used to walk around all day saying, The world is round, the world is round, the world is round. Uh, Opie, will you be quiet and would you mind standing downwind a little? <laughs> Columbus passed from boyhood to manhood and then on into adolescence. Never having forgotten his dream, he went to the court of Spain and said to the queen, Queen Isabella, buy me some ships and I'll find a new route to China. So the queen hopped her jewels, and a few months later, Columbus set sail in three small Spanish doubloons. <laughs> queen Isabella gave him a farewell party, and when he left Spain, he was really sailing. <laughs> we now find him summers in the Atlantic. Sailing? Three a month. Well, this must be the original slow boat to China. But they soon sighted land. America. Out from the shore paddled red-skinned natives. Hugs. <laughs> you can see they were direct descendants of the cavemen. Captain, Captain, ask them savages where we can buy something to eat. Okay, say, where can we buy some groceries, Buster? No can buy them nothing today. Stores all close them. Big holiday. What holiday? Columbus Day. <laughs> and so America was discovered. And the little band who braved the tempest of the sea did not do so in vain. For through their efforts, America gave the word... 
Lynn Lee. Apple stick lifesavers with a hole in the middle. Oh, man, he's 1890, French dressing. The Hudson Hughes stepped down into. Hey, Ron, reducing pills. Yeah, cool ass bubble dog. The 19th century, the time of the Industrial Revolution. Man is busy making machines. James Watt invents the steam engine. <laughs> this led to many other inventions, including four-way coal tablets. In America, the country was starting to expand. Settlers traveled across the plains in covered wagons. Towns sprung up overnight. Here we see two pioneers reenacting a typical scene. Looks like a nice place. You want to settle here, Alba? Well, it's all right with me, Kirk. And thus was founded the city of Albuquerque. <laughs> Many more towns were founded, and the country grew, and so did the world. We had two world wars in the space of 20 years, and now it's 1950. 1950 with our skyscrapers, jet planes, family autos that go 100 miles an hour, guided missiles, atom bombs, hydrogen bombs. <laughs> Let's leave history for a moment and look into the future. The H-bomb has been dropped. The world lies in complete ruin. Everything obliterated. Only two monkeys remain sitting on a smoldering hilltop. One monkey says to the other, Yes, look at that mess. Not a human being left. Yeah, now the two of us monkeys have the whole thing to start over again. Oh, what a day. Come on, Phil, let's go home. It's been a miserable picnic.